Hello, this is uh, Timothy Matthews, and uh, this is the second in our podcast called Between the Lines, um, organized by myself, Timothy Matthews at UCL, and Simon Cook at Wolfson College, Oxford. This is a series of podcasts devoted to translation and the importance of translation in enjoying literature. And today I'm delighted to be with Alessandro Colenzi, who's the publisher of Alma Books and Alma Classics. Uh, and a translator himself of English into Italian, as well as a novelist. And uh, I thought uh, perhaps you'd like to start, Alessandro, by saying something about your career in publishing since you've been here in the UK. Yeah, I moved to the UK in 1997. I started in publishing in Italy, uh, mainly as a translator. Um, I translated a couple of long books, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte and um, Anne Rathcliffe's The Italian. Um, and then I translated The Rape of the Lock in Rhyming Couplets and put it in a drawer. And I left for uh, England uh, with the hope of uh, getting into publishing. And that happened relatively soon. I started work for a, a company who imported books into the Middle East and uh, persuaded them to cough up some money to launch Hesperus Press, which I did in 2001. And Hesperus was um, a very successful company translating uh, European classics uh, by famous authors, lesser-known works by famous authors with new introductions. It was a kind of overnight success and um, and that made us confident to go solo, which happened three years ago. Uh, so with my wife, I set up Alma Books. Um, I continued to translate. I translated Virginia Woolf and then uh, met um, the publisher of Adelphi, uh, one of the most prestigious Italian publishers, and um, and told him that I had sent him 10 years before my translation of The Rape of the Lock, and he swore, he swore that he had never seen it. <laughs> so he published it that year, and he went on to win a prize. Um, so I've managed to keep the two things alive. Uh, translation is very much important in what we do at Alma. Um, in the fiction, new fiction um, program, I would say that about 40% of our new books are translations, and 60% originally in English. Um, for the classics, however, it's probably the, the reverse. It's 60% or 70% even translations, as opposed to 30-40% originally English. And we translate mostly from uh, French, German, Spanish, Italian and Russian. Mm. There are also some a few titles from other languages, such as Persian, uh, Japanese, um, Spanish, but uh, but mostly the, you know they're French, German, uh, Italian, Russian, mm. the, the main languages. Yes, I've noticed that's a very very strong European wide emphasis there. Yeah. Um, I was wondering uh, how is it that you pick texts for translation because you've got a, a, a mixture there, haven't you, of, of, of canonical texts that might have been translated a number of times yeah. and ones that are either lesser known or certainly lesser translated. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, I've um, I've always been interested, um, my background being academic in research, and I spend a lot of time at the British Library, London Library. I read a lot, so I'm omnivorous, and I'm particularly interested in things that challenge the reader, and consequently always go for uh, less obvious choices. Um, Once you go through the more uh, important, the evergreen classics, from the Austins to the various 19th and 20th century classics, um, you, you feel that you want more and you want to find out the context around those novels and so you, you start digging a, a bit deeper. 
and so it is that I uh, I came to know the lesser known works of many um, important authors. A uh, few people know about uh, a book called, for example, Is Shakespeare Dead by Mark Twain? Um, mm -hmm. and that immediately intrigues me because I'm interested in Shakespeare, I'm interested in Mark Twain. Um, so I, I've got, um, you know, I, I'm particularly interested in uh, lesser known and just neglected, just forgotten uh, titles. Um, in our in our list, um, we have a balance, but I would say we're stronger whenever the the, the addition the, the classic we do is unique, and this is our position in the market. Now that's what it doesn't it doesn't necessarily influence our choice because we we publish what we're passionate about. However, it's it's very important whenever there is no competition and we can uh, surprise the readers and the critics. Well, Shakespeare is such an important figure in any, in any case, isn't he? In yeah. obviously in himself, but in, in uh, ideas of revolution in literature uh, all over Europe. And uh, I suppose the title you mentioned is Shakespeare Dead. Well, fits in with I think it's in in Calder books, isn't it? We've got um, Stendhal's yes, yes. scene in Shakespeare. Yes, yes, well. we've got that one as well. And um, we, as I say, whenever we can find uh, new angles um, to. Um, to teach, to show readers that classics are not boring, they're not old-fashioned, but they can be really vibrant and they can be interesting, humorous. Um, there's not just one side to them, but you can explore them. And it's, it's a very, very uh, sort of vast and varied field of discovery. <laughs> Um, I notice on the on, on the German side, you've, you've got uh, quite a, quite a lot of, of romantic texts, haven't you? Nineteenth century sort of Keller and yes. uh, things like that, but also um, the the fascinating book Adalbert von by Chamiso of Peter Schlemiel, the one yes. the, the story of the person who trades his shadow. Trades his shadow. Yeah. yeah. Um, we inherited all those from the Calder list. Um, we. Uh, I think they are the only editions in print and they have been for the last few decades. Um, we decided to sort of resurrect them with new editions, re-edit them. We also have the only edition, complete edition of the Wilhelmeister in English. Yes. So it's a very important list for us and uh, we keep it alive by commissioning new translations. Uh, for example, Dearest Father by Kafka, again a lesser known work. Um, and um, um, the letters by Kafka, so we, we try to complement what we have from from the backlist with new translations. I think that German literature. I think we um, the the Calder list was incredibly strong on in two sides. One one was the sort of German literature, and another strand was twentieth century French literature, all the Nouveau Roman. Um, from uh, Savot to um, Claude Simon, Simon and Robert Rie, yeah. but also Céline and Quenot yes. and all these great authors. And um, my main interest is sort of uh, from the 18th century to the end of the, uh, I would say the, the 19th century. That is my area of expertise. And if you notice, all the new commissions fall in that kind of area. So the two lists complement each mm. other mm. very, very neatly. Mm. I wanted to talk to you, uh, just take a, just a tiny step back uh, about Dearest Father by Kafka. Um, um, amongst other reasons, it's, it's, that's uh, one of the many books you have here, uh, including one of my own actually with Delphine Grass, uh, the poetry of, of, of Michel Welbeck. But that one is also translated by a team, isn't it? By, by two yes, people. Yes, uh, that's a very interesting experiment. Um, 
I'm always um, reluctant whenever there's uh, you know there's two translators because mm. you know as a publisher you ask yourself um, can you really ensure that there's going to be a voice. But that's the, um, you know, I think generally speaking, um, you know, you, you would have to be wary about that. But having translated myself with, uh, with my wife a book by Wolf, so it was a forehand job, um, I then realized that, you know, the, there is an opportunity to work together. Maybe uh, one person can bring one particular uh, experience of, um, you know, the language maybe, and the other one, um, the ability in the target language, so I think it can work, but uh, it's probably more tricky to, <laughs> to 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 pull it out, to pull it off. Yeah. And um, in this case, we have Richard Stokes, who's yes. uh, one of the leading translators from from uh, German, um, translator of poetry of leaders, leader yes, in yes, in particular, yeah. that's his speciality. And Kafka, he translated already when we were at Hesperus the um, Metamorphosis, and um, very successful edition and um and this is one of our most uh, successful books he translated with his uh, daughter uh, hannah who however after this experience decided to become a barrister so she changed from being from a translator kafka from law. kafka to the oh, law exactly from being the other side um thank you um moving i suppose to, to well perhaps stick with german a little bit because um uh, you, you, there's also quite a lot of translation of expressionist literature, yeah. isn't there? That, that, again, uh, yeah. again, this is uh, one of the pet areas for John Calder. Mm. He's um, he's got wonderful uh, expressionist uh, writers uh, from Vedekind. Mm. Um, there's um, also a, a series of uh, um, expressionist uh, writers. Um, uh, including plays by Kafka, one play by Kafka, and by, by many other writers. So it is one of his um, not ter- not terribly successful from a commercial point of view, but incredibly uh, important, influential, and um, you know we have to give John Cole the credit for mm. what he has done to bring this um, uh, relatively difficult uh, text and make them available to to English readers. Mm. I mean, after all, Lulu is a famous, yes. made in famous opera as well. So, yes. it, it, and um, he also published um, *Spring Awakening* yes. and, and other, and other. So, um, you know, and, and many other writers. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if this is the moment to talk a little bit. You have an opera series as well, don't you? Yes, we. Yeah. Um, this is something that again originated in, in the um, late seventies, beginning of the eighties. John called. With ENO, English National Opera, they started under the editorship of Nicholas John, um, very passionate music editor, uh, this series of libretti with articles by the leading um, opera mm-hmm. uh, experts um, at the time. Um, what we have done is we are repackaging and uh, those librettis, but bringing a lot more material new articles mm-hmm. uh, color pictures facing uh, text um, and a wealth of material as well as commissioning new ones mm-hmm. so the list is now comprises about 50 50 titles so it's a it's the it's unique there's nothing uh, like that in, in the 
uh, in the English world, no. and it's a very successful list, both mm. from a commercial point of view and a critical point of view. It must be very exciting from your very point of view. Very exciting, and we, and we get to go to uh, ENO Productions <laughs> and dress rehearsals, so it's it's even more enjoyable. Yeah. Um, on the subject of music, I, 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 um, I think this is another uh, John Calder relationship between him and Barbara Wright, uh, who, who began as a, as a pianist, if, if I understand correctly. Yes. Um, I just wondered if, uh, if, you, if you had any thoughts uh, about yeah. uh, whether, um, about any, um, whether there could be some sort of connection, whether speaking from your own experience as a translator, uh, between translation and, and performing music, you know, between being a musician in that sense of, you know, interpreting music of others in an honest way and in a personal way, inevitably, yeah. and translating. Yeah, no, I think it's a very apt uh, sort of simile. And um, I, if, they, if people ask me, um, you know, to compare translation to anything, I would say music, definitely performing music or perhaps uh, restoring a painting. And they are the two activities that are more alike, so where you have to uh, respect the original, but at the same time trying to add some brightness uh, whenever it's, um, you know, and it could be, um, you have to be careful in not overdoing it. Uh, so, you, you know, these, these are, and I had the fortune of, uh, the good fortune of meeting Barbara before she died a few years ago. And, um, she has um, worked with. Um, she had, you know, she was lucky to to work with uh, these great twentieth century authors from um, Sarot, especially to um, um, even Quenot. So when she translated Exercise in Style, which is now her translation is a classic because it's one of the most inventive and you know very difficult uh, translations. Um, she she actually uh, worked with Quenot who. Uh, agreed uh, that she um, that she writes um, two pieces that are completely invented, mm -hmm. for example. So there are two pieces which, uh, in our recent edition, uh, Gallimard quite stupidly asked us to suppress <laughs> because they wanted us to 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 go back to the uh, to the main text. But uh, you know, th this has happened when you interact with the text and when you have the fortune to 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 um, to work with a living author obviously one thing is to work with a living author and one thing is to work with a classic they're two completely different uh, things you you interact a lot more with a living author obviously you can ask questions um at the moment i'm i'm, I'm translating um Auden into italian and i wish um uh, Auden were, were alive because most of the time I'm scratching my head <laughs> I know he was intentionally obscure but sometimes you would just want to shake him and ask him you know what did, what did you mean here <laughs> is, am I getting it right or is it completely wrong and sometimes I ask even you know mother tongue English people and I get different you know mm -hmm. different replies for as many uh, <laughs> I suppose it's sometimes tricky worth it working with a living author, isn't it? Because they may not know exactly what to say in, in relation to the question, what well, do you They mean? may not know the, <laughs> the target language very or well, the target language, which right. could be an obstacle. I remember yeah. working with a living author and we sent him proofs and he came back with a thousand queries. And that, most of the queries were down to the fact that his knowledge of English was very limited. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. 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 Um, 
But with uh, the, the case of Cano and Barbara Wright, I mean, that, that, that's the, uh, an example of a very creative relationship. That's incredibly creative. I mean, you have where, to... Where the translator yes. understands... The, and, but perhaps we should say that exercise to seal exercise in style is, is exactly what it says. Yes. It's, 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 a, it's a formulaic approach to a tiny little story, exactly. which is then reinvented and revoiced in, in a number of different, quite yes. canonical and humorous mm-hmm. styles. And so the, to translate that in the first place is, 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 is a question of translating into a completely different culture because style is obviously very specific in that way. So in a way, as a, as a living author, as the original author of the text, you might be very encouraged if the translator understands the, the exercise so well that she can produce more modulations. Yeah, I mean, this is um, the exercise in style is one, it's totally untranslatable. You have to reinvent uh, many of the pieces because mm. translating them uh, literally would be ridiculous, wouldn't convey, you know, the, the sense of the original, the tone, nothing. Um, it's interesting to see that uh, the Italian version is by Umberto Eco, who um, wrote um, 40 page uh, introductions uh, to explain you know, the way he's approached it. And it's quite interesting to see um, you know, how different translations of the same text work in different languages, how difficult, how much they are apart. Um, as I say, Keno had the good fortune of finding Bar- in Barbara Wright a perfect translator. And I think, as you said, Barbara Wright was very lucky that Keno was so, you know, was someone who could understand uh, that, uh, you know, the, the kind of work that needed to be done that was more creative and more, I would say, free um, than normally for, for other texts. Going back to your own work, trans- and translating verse in particular, I mean, and I wonder what your feelings were um, with regard to keeping metre. Um, each language has its own prosody, doesn't it? Its own way yeah. of constructing yeah. rhythm in, in verse and in, in, uh, in, in poetic language generally. Yeah. So um, does Italian prosody work in the same way? Yes, very much so. Um, I tend to be um, at home with very formal poetry. Um, so I've started translating, for example, especially sonnets, um, long poems um, in heroic couplets, such as The uh, Rape of the Lock. Mm. But also more recently, I translated Julian Bell's uh, epistle to Dr. Brightwhite. Um, and again, you know, I, I translated that maybe in four or five days, although it was 400 lines, because it just came to me naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I, I find it sometimes easier and I can cope with it uh, more easily than, say, a poem by Auden where the, the music is a lot more subtle and it's more, much more difficult to replicate. So in, in that case, my approach is to find a completely alternative rhythm. So I've now translating his selected poems, so starting from his very early poems, going up to the very late poems, and I will find absolutely, you know, a whole spectrum of forms, um, hundreds of forms. He liked to use all different forms, from very formal to complete free verse. And there, what I had to try and do is to be faithful in that, so I don't have to put everything in my meter but I have to respect that there's diversity in sound and rhythm and be very difficult my last translation of Auden was The Age of Anxiety and there are 56 different stanzas kind of stanzas in it Um, the 
prosody is hellish and uh, it's very difficult to make it work in Italian. So I had to, to invent an alternative meter to, to try and cope with it. Oh, interesting. Because, uh, <laughs> as you say, he uses so many different meters and all, all in, the ser- in the service, especially in combination, I think, yes. of trying to replicate the rhythms of spoken speech. And also they come from, sometimes they come from uh, Middle English or mm. from you know, the meter of Beowulf, Beowulf and yeah. uh, you don't have that in Italian, you don't have that tradition. So um, our earliest poems are from the, the 13th century, so it's completely different history. So you have to create an equivalent or references that will work uh, for Italian readers. Yeah. And are you looking for that kind of uh, creativity, if I can call it that, uh, in the translations that you commission? Um, yes, most... Um, and you remember we had a chat about mm. this when we, um, when, when we commissioned the Huelbeck. Um, most of the almost all of the translations uh, of poetry are uh, formal translations, so translation to rhyme um, or verse anyway. So we're just coming out with a new translation of the Divine Comedy. It's, yeah, it's fully in verse by J.G. Nichols. Yes. And um, he and Anthony Mortimer translated the other books uh, by Dante also in rhyme. But... Now and again, there are exceptions, and uh, your book was one. Another one was um, Eugene Onegin mm-hmm. uh, by um, Pushkin, where the author pitched me the idea that he was trying to capture the novelistic element, which was, to him, more important, and the one that got suppressed when you translate it into English with the rhymes, it feels that you are stifling the text, that you are almost in, creating a cage, and as a, as a you know as a result, it comes out as if it's doggerel. When in fact, in in uh, in Russian, it's quite light-hearted and humorous and witty, and that usually gets lost with the with the links and the chains of of meter. So that was very successful. We had uh, people who came to us and wrote to us saying that that is you know even uh, theatre directors saying that this is a wonderfully um, idiomatic and um, accessible uh, translation so I would say that in translation there is not one rule uh, that you can apply to all texts you have to respect each text and treat it treat the text individually and find you know the, the best way to cope with them um, and sometimes this is why sometimes it's important to translate more than once um, the same text I mean it happened even to me I've commissioned more than one translation of many titles. Yes. <laughs> Moving from Hesperus to, to Alma Classics, I've retranslated, I've asked new translators to, to translate, for example, um, a, a book by Bulgakov, The Fatal Eggs, and someone else to do uh, A Dog's Heart, because I wasn't very happy with the, with the previous translation. I've noticed that uh, you have several translations, not necessarily the same book, but, but of the same author, several translators of yes, the same author. Yes, Is yes. That, well, that's partly the same thing Yes, yes, yes. Sometimes you feel, you know, if, if, if for example, you've got a, trans- a, a book written by a woman, do you think that a man would be in a good position to translate it? If you've got uh, a book that is very masculine, would, it, would a woman be able to... Yeah cope with it that, that's that's sometimes like you ask yourself yeah. this uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to translate um, um, 
you know, uh, Rossetti or, uh, but I enjoyed tremendously uh, Charlotte Bronte, fell in love with her. But but I think it's difficult. It's difficult to change your voice. I yes. think you always try to find your natural voice yes. and and writers that are congenial to your style and to your voice. I very much agree. I mean, it's. Um, with the idea, I think, that you know, translation should translate what comes naturally to them to do so, rather than being asked to translate anything that's put in front of them. Would you agree with that? I do agree. I do agree, and uh, I'm probably the last person who should be translating audience. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a great, sometimes it's a great challenge, it's a great exercise, and it's a great workshop. Um, I, I come out from translating Odin a lot more refined, not necessarily my style, not necessarily what I like to read um, or how I like to write, but the process is very, very revealing for me. Moving over to, to French into English and going back to Céline, if I remember correctly, you have different translators of Céline, don't yes, you? Yes, um, the traditionally, traditionally the, the, trans, the translator of Céline is uh, Ralph Mannheim, who died a few years ago. Um, and uh, by the time of his death, uh, only two of his, uh, two or three of his masterpieces, um, of Céline's masterpieces, have been translated. Uh, during the end of the night, death um, on credit, and the third one is Guignol's Band, I believe. Um, so we are publishing these three, and we are adding um, a new translation uh, from um, by an, an American gentleman. Now, the, do you have the name there? Well, the one of for London Bridge, yes, Dominic Di Bernardi, and um, it wasn't commissioned by us, but by Dolce Archive Press, mm. and. Uh, we thought that we, we we looked at it, read it, and we loved it. And uh, rather than commission a new one, we decided that it was that they would use this one. So um, that's how we came to select this one. Unfortunately, Ralph is no longer with us, so he couldn't expand it. <laughs> yes, yes. And in Guignol's band is translated by Bernard Frechon okay, and Jack Okay, so Nard. yes, that's Ralph another... Mannheim has done uh, then the other one, uh, probably North or Rigadoon. Yeah. No, I just mean to say that Bernard Frechman is is a, a very renowned translator translator of Genet. Okay, that uh, I didn't know. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, um, perhaps it's interesting to go back for a moment to the idea of, of translating and retranslating. It's almost as though the, it's the destiny of a great work to be translated again and again. Isn't yes, it? So, I, I feel that um, it, if you go into any bookshop in Italy or in uh, France or Germany, you will see that uh, 60, 70% of the titles are classics and mm. there are maybe a dozen mm. uh, different editions of mm. the same book mm. translated mm. by different people. Mm. So when they asked me to translate a classic, um, Charlotte Bronte, I did not, uh, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, I did not hesitate for a moment because I thought that mm. since the last translation, which was in the 70s, language in Italy had evolved so much, um, things... Um, um, you know, the language has uh, changed um, with the influx of people from other countries, with the advent of uh, TV, uh, mass market, uh, mass television, and, um, uh, you know, the fact that for the first time after the Second World War, there was a generation uh, speaking in Italian as a mother language, as a mother tongue. So all these things influx the language and and crystallized the language um, and up to up till sort of 60s, 70s, the language of translations, especially in Italy, was incredibly old-fashioned mm -hmm. and uh, 
also the approach to translation was very different. And I, unfortunately, in this country, there's not such awareness and people will say, well, there's another translation of, um, of uh, War and Peace or Anna Karenina, who cares? You know, we already have, um, why do we need another translation of Inferno, Purgatory and Paradiso if we've got Dorothy L. Saves? I mean, I think this is very narrow-minded and, um, and it's uh, because people don't realize that a good translation can make the fortune of a book, uh, can make the reader appreciate the book more or less. And translation, just like writing, happens in time. And consequently, uh, the choices that are made by one translator are based on the pressures of time. And also, they're based on his or her own education, background, knowledge of the source language, knowledge of the target language. The new translator may have a better idea of the latest uh, translation uh, theories, may have a much better uh, idea of the source language because nowadays we travel a lot more. So it's got maybe a better knowledge of uh, the live language, which I think especially for contemporary novels, contemporary works is very important. And um, especially um, the writing abilities vary from person to person. This is why it's great to get many translations of the same text mm -hmm. and to get things continually translated. Um, sticking with French for, for, for a moment or returning to it, um, uh, one of my favorite books in the world is, is uh, Spleen de Paris, Paris Spleen by Charles yes. Baudelaire. And I noticed you've got uh, Martin Sorel's translation <laughs> yeah. of it. And you were talking there about the, the, the living language um, and of course, that changes over time. I mean, Baudelaire is writing in very, very living language of, of his time. And I, I guess it poses quite a lot of problems to translate the living language of, you know, 150 years ago into the living language of today. Well, this is a, it's a very tough choice when you're translating classics. When I was asked to translate, when I translated, actually, the, the Rape of the Lock, I had to make the decision whether to write in a kind of full... Um, old-fashioned language or writes with the um, with the language of today if I were translating it today probably um, I would change my mind I would I would do it in, in the language I speak actually I recently translated some more epistles by Pope and I translated them with modern language but that one because it was um, such an old-fashioned mock heroic with mm -hmm. that kind of high-sounding language I had to find something that was similar to, um, to the language used by, by Alexander Pope and went for an old-fashioned approach. Now here, Paris Plin, there's a, an interesting background to this title in that I got, over the years, since my time at Hesperus, I got probably five or six proposals. And I, <laughs> uh, all the time, I rejected those proposals on the ground that the language wasn't, simply wasn't right. And um, when I uh, met Martin, who has translated a lot of texts for Oxford University Press, he's a, a brilliant translator, he, 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 he showed interest in the idea of translating Paris Green, but I warned him that I had rejected a number of translations before. And he showed me his, um, his samples and I was happy with it. So, uh, that, you know, he, he passed the, the exam. <laughs> uh, but where, where was he successful? I think he was mostly successful with being close enough to the to the original and as you said the kind of um, the rhythm of the language I mean these are poems in prose yes and consequently um, they're deceit, you know deceitfully um, uh, easy to translate they're incredibly mm -hmm. complex and, and subtle so um, 
yeah, man, he pulled it off, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Do you enjoy, in general, working with translators in that way, or sometimes you just let them have their own head I and carry on? usually never let them have the, you know, entirely. <laughs> I I trust the few translators we we use. We don't we, we have a very limited uh, panel. I would say maybe a dozen or so people um, who have been translating many. Um, many works for us over the years. Um, J.G. Nichols, um, let's say Hugh Aplin, Andrew Brown, these three, you know, among the three of them probably they've translated a hundred titles for us. Mm -hmm. And then gradually we have expanded and we, we're still expanding carefully. And uh, one of the things that is very important is that uh, we find someone we can work with nicely mm -hmm. And um, you know, basically, uh, is on the same wavelength as it, when it comes to the approach to mm. be used, um, mm. because obviously, um, our approach is is peculiar to to our list. I suppose that other publishers will have a, a different approach, and um, I respect that. But you know, this is the kind of um, you know I always want to give it the imprimatur because I wanted to to have the same kind of approach and especially when it comes to former poetry I, I want to make sure that we are recognized for how we do things mm. do things in a certain way mm -hmm. well I mean uh, Delphine Grass and I certainly found you a, a very congenial uh, and, and helpful editor in that way we felt from the start that it was important for you to have an understanding with the translators um, yeah. as to, as to the, the concept that they were taking to translation into the book um, and uh, in our case, as you say, we, we, we did abandon uh, rhyme in, in favor of the, the, the striking forward movement of, of, of that book. Um, but we were very keen on, on, on trying to keep the, the, the soul, if you like, the, uh, yes. which translates into a certain style and certain tone. Um, and uh, we, we were very happy to, to be working in a house, that I think, that, that, that thinks that way too, uh, rather than go the other way, which is... Um, prioritizing immediate accessibility yes that's very unfortunate when uh, you know especially from america there's a it's the current thought that things should be readable and that's something sometimes is to the detriment of uh, complexities and it's all dumbed down it's all sort of flattened and uh, uh, yes uh, readability is important if you want to um to sell copies but i mean an author such as uh Huel beck is famous for being controversial, provocative, and modern. Um, maybe you know, if we had asked someone uh, writing in the language of uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, it would have been successful. The book. So you always have to f to match translators with authors carefully. And um, you know, when we saw your sample translation, it was evident that you had managed to capture the tone, which you know, being faithful to the tone of the poems. Is I think even more important than be faithful to the, uh, you know, to, to, to the literal meaning. Yeah. Sometimes interesting. That's been a very interesting conversation. I think <laughs> I've come to the end of all the questions I had in mind. I don't know if you would like to add anything um, that you would have liked me to ask you. I would like to encourage people to um, understand how important translation is mm. and. Um, and to try and, um, and double with translation because mm -hmm. translation is a particular skill 
and not everyone has it and it's good to know whether you have it or not mm. if you think you have it always you know try to come up with ideas and uh, get in touch with us because we're very open to a new translation to, to new ideas and especially young translators mm. So if a young translator you know, is, is writing his or her covering letter to her manuscript, you, know, you, must, you must get an awful lot of, of, mm -hmm. of proposals. Um, I, I want to ask the question, right? I mean, in, in general, what, what are you looking for to, that will in, encourage and nourish your list and expand it in ways that you would like? I would like to hear from any translator who loves uh, his or her um, subject. Uh, be it prose or uh, philosophy or drama, poetry, anything. Um, so long as you love and you're passionate about what you're you translating, I think that passion will come through. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe we will not be the right publisher, but we'll be able to um, you know, refer you to um, some other publisher. But there will be a home when, whenever there is passion. That's what I think. Good. Thank you very much Thank indeed. you. Thank Thanks you very much. Thank Cheers. you so much. Thank you.